this morning um, as we, thanks, um, continue in our series, Basic Christianity will be on the topic of love one another. And in preparing, I come across this um, story and um, it was quite interesting. It was a pastor who had met um, this 55-year-old man and um, this man wanted to share his testimony to the pastor. He wanted to tell him how he come to know the Lord. And he had only been saved for five years. Um, so he met Jesus at 50. And he said, before he met Jesus, he was a former alcoholic, drug addict. Um, he had several failed marriages. And in talking about all of these um, things that have encompassed his life and had really kind of been a picture of his life. He didn't necessarily blame it on anyone. He actually owned his own decisions. He said, you know, it was just my choices that led me down those paths. Um, and as he was talking to this pastor and, and sharing his testimony, he began to break down and um, he began to talk about his childhood and that he had a, a verbally abusive father who incessantly um, called him dumb, um, told him he was worthless, told him that he would never amount to anything, that every decision he made in life was going to be terrible. And he, and he said basically what happened is he just kind of be began to believe that. And, and that is kind of what led him to, to make some of the poor decisions um, that he made. Um, and the pastor said that as he was talking about this, he just kind of stopped. And he said, and he just kind of looked up, and he just kind of grinned, and he said, but five years ago when I met Jesus, I got a new daddy. And he said, he loves me. And so the thing is, is that gentleman's identity completely changed. He wasn't worthless. He wasn't dumb. He, he had made bad decisions, yes, but the blood of Christ had covered that. And in Jesus, he got a loving father, he got a gracious friend, and he got a perfect Savior. And it's that Savior, Jesus, who loved us enough to die. I mean, the first verse we learn if we're around church is John 3.16. You know, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. And that's the beauty of the gospel, that Christ loved his people and he gave his life and what we see in scripture is that the overabundance of love coming from the father should really lead us into living a life of love that out of gratitude for the grace he has shown to us that we love in return that out of the knowledge that I couldn't save myself, but God saved me. I then will live for him. And this morning, as we work through 1 John 3, um, the latter part of 1 John 3, that's exactly what we see. And the main idea is this, that the one who truly knows God will follow the example of Jesus and live a life of love. So I want to read our text to us this morning, for us, and, and then I want to just, I want us to just pray through this, 
Okay, so if you will, let's stand, and I'm going to start reading in verse 11, and we're going to work all the way through verse 24, through the end of chapter 3. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid his life down for us, and we ought to lay our lives down for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what, he, what pleases him. And this is the commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given us. Let's pray. Gracious Father, your story, our story, is ultimately a story of love. And in our day, we quickly forget that. Now, as the people of God, we can't assume that those who do not know you will act in love. But we know that because you love us, we are to love others. Even when it's hard, even when it brings about pain, persecution, rejection, anger. Because at the end of the day, your love covers all the sin of all of your people. And if you can love me, us, in such a way as to wash us white as snow, who are we to think that we can't love that greatly in return? Father, the world we live in is a mess.
But the promise of Scripture is that you are the light of the world. And as the light, you have set apart your people to be the light as well. So may we, as we work through this text this morning, realize that the light we should be shining forth is the light of the love of God. Who loved enough to give everything. So Father, may this passage reach deeply into the depths of our souls this morning. And to make us not necessarily question our salvation or make us doubt in that form, but maybe that it would just grip us to make us look at our own lives and ask, am I loving the way that Christ loves me? Am I light in this dark world? Or am I simply just another shade of the darkness? Father, my hope and my prayer is that you speak to us through your word this morning. That we would be confronted with the absence of love and darkness. And that we would find the most confidence in knowing that we are yours. That is for those of us who have trusted in you. And Father, for those who have not trusted in Christ, May the truth of this word this morning open their eyes to see their desperate need to be saved by our glorious King Jesus. And as your word says, that he confesses in you will find new life in you. So God, may we all hear the truths of your word. And may we find confidence, the reassurance of knowing that if we have trusted in Jesus, we are held fast. That you will never leave us. That you will never forsake us. Because you love us with a love that can simply not be described. And because you love us, we love the brothers. So we ask that you would bless the reading of your word. 
and that you find glory in the time that we have together this morning. In Jesus' gracious and holy name we pray. Amen. You can go ahead and be seated. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. John, again, he's writing to this church, warning them and reassuring them of false teachers that are coming in. And he's reassuring them that their faith in Christ as the living God is valid. That their confidence is in Him. That their salvation is in Him. And in writing to His people, He reminds them of the purity of the message that they have heard from the beginning. Now, this could be the message that it should be, the message that all Christians hear from the beginning, that we have been loved greatly by the Father, and we love in return. But it's also a message from the very beginning of time, time as we know it, that God is loved, and He created out of love, and He sustains out of love, and He saves because of love, all for the glory of His name. But it's always been a message of love. See, we are loved by God. And because we are loved by God, we then love. We don't love to receive God's love. We don't love to receive the love of others. We love because we are loved. The people of God should be marked by the love of God. Yet, in our day, in our culture, most people probably look at Christians as the least loving people. Because we'll jump on whatever the latest bandwagon is, and we'll boast about it, and we'll drive it home without actually seeing what is the Scripture calling us to do? What is the Scripture telling us is right and true? Who is the Scripture setting us apart to be? think far too often we neglect the teaching of Scripture and we adopt the teachings of the world and we call them our own and they become our platforms rather than the gospel of Jesus. And when that happens, we become a people not of love, but of angst and of anger. That's probably no surprise to you. We see every day people who call themselves the people of God that act quite contrary to the message of God. See, Christians should have a great love for God because of who He is. That is, He is holy, He is righteous, He is just, He is gracious, He is sovereign, He is majestic, He is glorious, and we can go on and on and on. And for what he's done. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. And then our love for him. Or rather his love for us. 
should drive us to love others. Remember, from the very first week of this series, we said that even though the series is called Basic Christianity, is any, it's anything but basic. Basic Christianity is radical Christianity. Because we have to carefully analyze the Scripture, and we have to ask the Scripture, what does the Scripture demand of us? Not as slaves, but as loved sons and daughters. And it demands, and it commands that we love. Why? Because He has loved us. And he goes on, and he makes this comparison between love and hate. And he said, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Somebody is not happy. Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. So do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. And everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So John begins to make this direct contrast to a Jesus-centered, God-honoring love. It's hate. The antithesis of love is hate. And he gives this example of Cain and Abel. So they, the brothers, they come before God with an offering. Abel with a true first fruits offering, giving thanks to God. And Cain comes with this kind of leftover offering just because he thinks it's the right thing to do. And God honors Abel's because it is pure. And he does not honor Cain's because it was not worth honoring It was simply a facade. And Cain, out of bitter rage and jealousy, then murders his brother. So, from the very beginning, we see that the absence of love is hate. And hate then leads to murder. And now, you might be thinking, yeah, but not all times hate leads to murder. It it actually does. It'll either lead to physical murder or it'll lead to some type of spiritual murder. And you see that all throughout the scriptures. So it's not like I'm just making that up, but but actually murdering someone's nature and character because we hate them. The absence of love is hate. And so when we are not loving someone the way that God loves us, then guess what we're doing? We're hating them. And this is something that we have to really watch ourselves about in our day and age. Because again, as Christians, we're quick to just jump on whatever bandwagon there is, but not actually thinking through, well, what does the scripture say? And so what happens is we actually become a people of hate rather than love. And the one who practices evil which is hatred hates righteousness hates good hates everything god it's why when scripture says that we're haters of god we're children of wrath we're antichrist this is what the scripture is referring to anyone who hates anything good hates god because god is good 
and it even says that the murderer has eternal, no eternal life abiding in him. We know that life and death are in the power of the tongue. How I'm loving someone, how I'm laying myself down for someone or not reveals my love. And then it says in verse 13, Do not be surprised then, brothers, that the world hates you. So we shouldn't be shocked when evil seems to be running rampant because the world is full of darkness. You know, and, and I think that we have like this... Um, unhealthy hope sometimes in the church that all the world is going to be made to love the Lord when we know according to scripture that's not the case right now we would want that and we desire that and we work for that we we proclaim the gospel so that the whole world may hear but we know that broad is the way that leads to destruction but narrow is the way that leads to life the world is full of darkness. The world is full of hate. Because the father of this world is one of darkness and hate. That's why Cain was referred to as one of the evil ones. Because he was not of the righteousness of God. He was being led and moved by his father the devil but the truth is that as we proclaim the good news of Jesus we will be hated as we stand as a light in the dark place we will be attacked and so as the people of God as Christians we can't be and shouldn't be surprised that when we begin to proclaim the goodness of God we will be hated and even rejected by the world and so if I say that I'm a Christian and yet all the world seems to love me, am I truly a Christian? Because if the world doesn't hate me, then I'm not saying anything that goes against what they agree with. But yet we know that the gospel is foolishness to those who do not believe. And so if I'm the gospel and I'm loving through the power of the gospel and I am shining the light of the glories of Christ then I'll be hated. I'll be rejected. Which is why it's so important for us to understand that our identity is in Jesus and not in the way people accept us. Because if I'm worried about what people think of me, instead of how Christ sees me and wants to use me, then my message will become muddy and powerless and soft rather than being true and sharp like a two-edged sword. But you need to understand what we're not saying is that we should just go around parading our righteousness to the world and say that the world is just 
horrible and not treat people as if they could come to know Christ. Because the thing about it is, is without the grace of Jesus, you and I are no different. I often think, what would my life look like have, had not God saved me? Just knowing where I've been and knowing my family and knowing our tendencies, where would I be if it were not for the grace of God? I can tell you where I would not be. It's probably here. And every one of us are in the same boat. Your families are different. Your tendencies are different. Your situations and lives are different. But if it were not for the grace of God, where would you be? That's why we must understand what the love of God is about. That God demonstrates his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died. That means in our, in our, in our nastiness, in the, in the deepest and darkest point of our life, Christ saw us and he died for us anyway. And so when we're parading our own beliefs and our own views and we're hating people and not loving them, we need to understand that they're no different than we were and yet God saved us. And so there has to be compassion. We must be compelled by love to love others. And I've, I've even heard preachers say that, you know, we have to be careful proclaiming a message of love like this in the church. And that's true to a degree. But it lacks when they say that that we're not having a loving spirit towards others, right? Because the danger of pre preaching a message of love is that we adopt the world's definition of love rather than the Scripture's definition of love. See, because the way that God loves us is also a thing that where He prunes us and He pricks us. And we have to be willing, as the people of God, to proclaim a hard message of love to the world. That's how we love them. I've given this example hundreds of times, probably, and I'll continue to use it and because I think it's one that everyone can relate with. If we got out of church today and we're all just congregating around and our kids are out playing and my Sophie or my Piper are playing in the middle of the road and I see this semi flying down the road, And without warning, she will be pulverized. Do I love her? Right? And that's how Scripture says that we love. If we see a brother or a sister falling, we love. We put ourselves in front of that semi if necessary. To do everything we can. That's love. Love is not turning away and letting someone simply perish. And he says, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers, but whoever does not love abides in death. He says, we know. That's confidence for us. 
When we begin to question, well, am I truly a child of God? Am I truly living the way that God would have me to live? Am I truly loving the way that God would have me to love? He says, we know if we have that type of love for the brothers, then we can rest assured that we are His. Because unless the love of God is in us, we can't love that way. Does that make sense? Like, I can't love in such a way to, to get my Sophie out of, from in front of a semi that's barreling down the road if the love of God is not in me. If I see a brother falling into a pit and I don't do everything I can to stop it, am I actually loving? So when I'm led to love in that way, that could lead to hurt, that could lead to pain, that could lead to rejection. Saying we know that we've passed from death into life if we love in that way. See, the Christian can remain confident that if we have been saved by Jesus, then we are held fast by him. Are we going to be perfect? No. Will we fail? Absolutely. But if we have truly surrendered our lives to Christ, then our heart will break over sin in our life and we will cry out to him, forgive me. And he will. But as we said last week, the truest repentance is to do so no more. So it's not really repentance then if I just say, forgive me, Lord, but then I just continue to do the same things over and over and over. It doesn't work that way. If my heart has truly been changed, then I will grieve sin. And then he moves on now to the absolute example of love. Verse 16. It says, by this, we know love. That he laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Our culture has completely lost the understanding of what love is. It's conditional. It takes rather than gives. It's selfish rather than selfless. What can I get in return? Or, you know, yes, I'll do this if I get this in return. That's not love. How do we know that's not love? Because Christ is the very definition of love and he gave his life to set us free. And you need to understand that. It's, it's not that he simply like just took his last breath. It's not even that he bore a crown of thorns or that he was beaten and that he was nailed to a cross and that he suffocated in that way and that he took a spear to his side. No, it's that he bore the very wrath of God meant for your sin and my sin. Not as far worse than a simple crown of thorns and a cross can ever bear. And yet we make so much of that and we completely forget that Isaiah said it, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Why? 
For God so loved the world that he gave so that we could be redeemed. And so John is reminding them, he's pointing them to this, the most supreme example of love imaginable, and it's the death of Christ. It's Jesus coming, the God-man. And despite our sin and our shame, Jesus, driven by unconditional and undefiled love, went to the cross to bear God's wrath for the sin of his people. You want to know why Jesus was sweating drops of blood? It wasn't because of the crown of thorns or the beating that he was going to endure. It's because he knew that he was about to bear the weight of all the sin of all of God's people for all of eternity and that God was going to crush him. That he was going to unleash his wrath meant for all of his people over the span of history on his son. Not on them as individuals, but on him and him alone. And he simply said, it is finished. And in that moment, God, through Christ, took our sin and placed it on his son and destroyed his son and in, in place of that took the son's righteousness and put it on all of us. Now think about that for a minute, okay? All of God's people throughout history, every sin, and you can just think of the, your own sin in your own life, okay? How many times we fail God and we break God's heart, but yet God took not just yours and mine, but He took all of ours, and He put it on His Son. And Christ would bear that type of weight, that type of darkness, and God would crush Him. And in the same moment, the righteousness of Christ was enough righteousness to cover the sin of all of those people. It wasn't like he only had just a little bit of righteousness. It was enough righteousness to cover all of God's people for all of time. That's love. So our response then to him and his great love for us is our unmerited love for others. And I know we've asked this before, but what in the world can anybody do to you that's worse than what we have done to Christ? We have sinned against the holiness of God. And yet he loved us anyway. And studying for this, I was um, reminded of a passage that I used to just stay in. And I haven't actually even read it in a long time. John 15, Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does not bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. So, right off the bat, he's saying, like, if, if, if my people are not doing what they're called to do, I'm going to prune them so they can do it. So do you understand that? 
I mean, you're going to face some pain, right? If we're not living for the glory of God, if we're taking advantage of the fact that he is ours, then we will be pruned. He's not afraid to allow hardships to come into our lives, so it's not going to be all roses. So that he may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me, my words abide in you. Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. And this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. For you are my friends, if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants. For the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. But if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of their sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth, who proceeds from the father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. And then he actually begins the next chapter. He says, I've said all these things to keep you from falling away. If you don't get anything, get this. That the love of God led him to destroy his son on our behalf. It's a love that lays oneself down. sacrifices sacrifices our time our wants 
our desires, our hopes, our dreams for the good of others so that they may know Him. It's a selfless love. It's an unconditional love. And our love for Jesus and our love for others should be evident in our lives. Right? I mean, we can say all day long, and and that's kind of what he's saying. It's in verse 18, he says, Little children, again, this is him like as a father to his child or as a pastor to the people he loves dearly, saying, Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So love is not simply a word. Love is not simply talking. Love is action. And we know that because love led Christ to the cross. And if we are His, then it should lead us to bear our cross as well. Because there is no comparison to the love of God. There is no replacement for the love of God. So let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. With Christ as our example, our glorious King, and in Him, We find confidence to live the life he's called us to live. Verse 19. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is the commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. Just as he has commanded us, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. We have confidence in knowing that we are His if our lives are marked by love. What does that mark of love look like? It's a love that is selfless. It's a love that sacrifices. It's a love that gives. It's also a love that speaks the truth when it needs to be spoken. It's a life of obedience. And as we see in these verses, our obedience to him in in being a people who are marked by love, who reflect his love is where we find assurance. And again, we will fail. Yes, we will. And and when we do, our hearts try to condemn us. It tries to make me think that I'm not worthy and and I'm not by any stretch of the imagination, but He is gracious to overcome my my worthlessness. But when I fail, I just want to crumble 
This is why it's so important to understand grace. I heard Francis Chan talking about this several years ago. He was like, you know, this is why we want to encourage people to um, have time alone with the Lord, but we can't say that every person needs to do it at 5 o'clock every morning because, you know, what happens? It, it doesn't work for everybody. So if I make a commitment that I'm going to do this to honor God, but, but it's not a desire in my heart, it's more of just to make Him okay and make Him happy and, and, and to know that I have to do it, that it's become more of a duty than a delight, then, then I might do it for a day or two, but then all of a sudden I miss, and then, then I get really down on myself, and then I become to miss more. And, and what this passage is saying is that if when our heart is condemned in that sort of way because we have failed, we must not look down upon ourselves, but we must turn our eyes to Christ, who is the author and the perfecter of our faith, and who loves us and who forgives us when we do fail. We should rest in Christ. Our confidence is in Him. It's not in our work. If, if my confidence in being a child of God was in the work that I did, I probably don't have packed up and did something else. I would have no confidence because I fail time and time and time again. But He does not fail, which is part of the beauties of Romans 8 that says, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies who is to condemn? It's Christ Jesus that died. And more than that, who was raised. So our confidence is in Christ, not ourselves. So I want to encourage you, sinner, that when you do sin, you can turn your face to Christ and know that there is forgiveness in Him. By this, we know, love, that He laid down His life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers, and he goes on in verse 19, By this we shall know that we are the truth of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows all things. The beauty of even John 15 that we read and even where we're reading right now, it seems if you do these commandments you, you, you know, and, and love him and love him, guess what? You're not going to be able to do that greatly. You're going to fail. You can't keep the, command, the commandments. You can't check all the boxes, which is why the grace of God is so much more sure, which is why he's saying, turn not to yourself, but turn to me who knows all things, who is greater than all things. Because salvation is of the Lord, it's not of us. And this is only possible. It's only possible to turn our eyes to him and rest in him because he is sovereign over all. We find confidence in him because he knows all things. Now, for some people, that's horrifying. But for the child of God, it's reassuring. It's reassuring because even though he knows me and he knows my heart and he knows the wickedness that is within, he died for me anyway. And if that can't lead the people of God to rejoicing, then I really don't know what will. He's good. And as the Psalms say over and over and over again, His mercy endures forever. We also can find confidence, Christian, in our prayer life. That we have the opportunity to be able to call out to God and to pray to God. He says, verse 21, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him because he, we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. 
So we have this opportunity to pray to Him, to cry out to Him, to call to Him. But We need to understand that this doesn't mean that we just simply throw out a bunch of prayers and He's just going to give us all we want. This is more of we're calling out to Him and He's going to give us what we need. Remember, this is a father who is willing to prune his children in order for us to be what He desires for us to be. And even in the midst of that, we want to question and say, but why would God do that? Because He's working all things for good, and our definition of good and His definition of good are quite different. And so when we want to question the bad things that happen in our life, we need to just turn our eyes again to Him, turn our heart to Him, and realize that He knows more than we do. And we can have confidence in prayer because we know that Jesus, following His death and resurrection, ascended back into heaven to be our intercessor and our mediator who hears our prayers and delivers them to the Father. Your prayers are heard. They might not be answered the way you want them to be answered or at the time you want them answered, but they're heard by the God of the universe. So if God is sovereign and He loves us and He has set us apart for His purpose. Then our only rightful thing is to live confidently the life He's called us to live. Romans 12, 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living, what? Sacrifice. Holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Worship is not the 90 minutes we're here this morning. Worship is every moment of every one of our days. This is an expression of that where the saints can gather together to proclaim the goodness of God. And he goes on, he says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. It's the good news of the gospel. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. And then he skips on over in verse 9. He says, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. And seek to show hospitality. And he just goes on and on and on. And he says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So shine the light that God has placed in you. The light is Jesus. Love unbounded, vast, and free. Jesus loves us, and He is the Lord of all. And if God can love wretches like us, how much can we love the brothers? So I want to encourage you. 
as John is encouraging this church, I want to encourage you to abide in him and know that he is abiding in us. Our confidence is made sure by the Holy Spirit living within each of us who have surrendered to Christ. See, the mark of a true Christian is love. And Christ is the epitome of love. He is the standard. And again, there will be times where we fail and our heart condemns us. But instead of soaking in doubt, turn your eyes to Jesus. Find confidence and assurance in Him who is the author and perfecter of our faith. In closing, I want to just leave you with this simple thing that I, I read in um, from Danny Aiken. He's president of Southeastern Seminary. But it's just kind of a test of belief. That's three points. The first one is belief. Do I really believe rightly about Jesus? Do I believe that he is Lord? Do I believe that he's actually God come? And do I believe that he actually died a very real death and he is resurrected from that death and that he is still alive? Secondly, obedience. Am I really obeying God as I ought? And third is love. Is my love for others what it should be? Should be. He doesn't say could be because the obvious answer to that is no for every one of us. But is it what it should be? So Christian, in moments of doubt, in moments of shame, in moments of failure, look to Him and rest in His grace because you have a new day. You have a new identity. You are no longer yours. You are His. And you have been loved. So love fiercely. Let's pray. Our Father, what more can we say than thank you for loving us despite us? And now we pray in this moment that you would just give honor and glory to your own name as you work the way that you know to work. In Christ's name we pray.